something we hope you'll really like. All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in again to our podcast, Beyond the Knife. Knife, 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 knife. Those are fantastic uh, high-budget season one special effects. Maybe season two will uh, have money for an actual echo machine. But for now, um, Giancarlo will echo me and I will echo him. Uh, Anyways, (laughs) I am uh, Dr. Matthew Plant from Toronto. And uh, I'm here with Dr. Giancarlo from Miami area. And uh, today we're going to talk about breast implants, Uh, basically everything that we think you should know about breast implants before you go and get a pair. So I think this is a great topic because a lot of, I'm sure you get the same questions as patients want to know what is saline, what is silicone, what are gummy bears, what is a high profile, what's a low profile, what what's the deal with texture? What's, I guess, breast implant illness. Um, there's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, I think if we organize it with what's important to you as the patient who's listening and interested, and also what, what we as plastic surgeons kind of will sprinkle our opinion, uh, throughout, uh, the topics and that'll be the best way to go. So Matt, maybe I'll, I'll just start off with you. Maybe sure. the, the big question is saline or silicone or both. And what? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that is the million dollar question. And, um, you know, patients, I think, always come in and ask, okay, what is the best breast implant? Is it saline? Is it silicone? Uh, Is it something else? What's the best breast implant? And my answer is always the same. If there was a best breast implant, there wouldn't be multiple options of breast implants because it would be clearly this one. And I would stop offering anything that was not as good as it. Uh, Unfortunately, it just doesn't work that way when it comes to breast implants. And it's all about putting the right type of implant into each patient. And there are so many factors that can come into play when we're deciding what's best for someone, saline versus silicone. There's, you know, things on my end, which is how it's going to look aesthetically. There's certain reasons that someone couldn't have saline, for example, like if their tissue's too thin and they might ripple. And then there's also things on the patient side. Uh, some patients just straight up do not want silicone. Some patients only want silicone. And there's a whole multitude of reasons that they might, you know, want one over the other. What's been well, your think, experience with yeah, that? Yeah. So I, I agree. Uh, I kind of have more of a black and white view of it because I think what patients need to understand and anyone listening to the podcast needs to understand is that, you know, saline is just salt water with a silicone shell and a silicone implant is the silicone shell then filled with silicone. So I always find it hilarious when people are like, I don't want silicone, but I'll do saline, but it's like, okay, well, saline has a silicone shell. So you're still getting silicone. And I actually found in my experience because saline implants are cheaper that that was the reason why patients would choose the saline. They wouldn't choose it for any other reason except that it was cheaper. So I don't do saline implants anymore. I find that they don't feel like real breasts and exactly how you hit the nail on the head that some patients are not a candidate because of the rippling and because of the appearance of saline. Uh, so I just remove that from the equation. So I, I don't do saline implants anymore. Uh, I think, you know, the, the major advantage of saline, I mean, if you do it more, you could probably talk about it is that you can do a smaller incision and you can kind of sneak the implant in through, you know, through the belly button or, you know, through the armpit. Um, but I feel like 
since I do the vast majority of my implants through either an intramammary um, incision or like kind of a vertical incision, that that usage doesn't apply to me. So uh, I've removed that choice for patients. <laughs> what do you think about that? <laughs> wow, um, bold. I uh, I mean, I'm not really one to remove choices. I'll explain to them why they want one over the other in any given case or kind of give them the pros and cons if it's totally up to them. Um, you know, far and away, more patients choose silicone, but yes. some patients really just don't want silicone in them. And I don't know sure. if it's, um, it. you know, because of this breast implant illness stuff online that they're kind of worried about silicone. Um, but Definitely, there's patients that come and say, like, I don't want silicone. I sure. want saline. And I can also offer those people an ideal implant, which is a saline yes. device that is yeah. definitely not cheaper than a silicone. Uh, in fact, it's uh, about 25% more in terms of the cost for that surgery, but it's a saline-based device. It feels a little bit better than your traditional like water balloon type saline. Uh, not as soft as a silicone, but great option for people who really you know, have a preference towards saline. And for people who don't know what the ideal device is, it's basically a hybrid. You get the benefits of a silicone device, but also, uh, you know, the benefits of a, uh, an infillable, a fillable uh, saline device. Um, so it's kind of a hybrid if, if you're caught in the middle. I, I found that, you know, when it comes to feel and the kind of the long-term appearance of the breast, that the, the silicone really looks better and feels better, but I can understand, you know, the, the kind of, I guess, the hype around silicone that, and, and the breast implant illness, which maybe we can get into, uh, of why people don't want silicone. And then I just say, well, how about fat transfer to the breast or how about, you know, just doing a breast lift or, um, you know, finding some way to enhance the breast without using an implant. Cause that, you know, I think in the days before fat transfer to the breast, it kind of was, you know, implants or nothing, but now with fat transfer, since we have, you can use your body's own tissues, uh, you know, within reason, you can't get the same, mm. you know, size increase usually in, in one go as you can with an implant. That's kind of when a patient says to me, I don't want silicone, then I'm immediately, okay, let's talk fat transfer. Yeah, that's a good point. Now that we do have the fat transfer option, it does change things a little bit, but I find that once I kind of break it down to patients, this is what implants can do. This is what fat can do. Very few of them end up choosing fat because it doesn't add any structure. It just adds straight up True. volume. And True. I can't really add much more than, you know, 250 cc's per right. round. We don't know if all of that's going to take. So we might have to do another round. And, you know, at about $10,000 per round, um, it can get very expensive to do a total True. augmentation by fat transfer. For some people, that is the right answer. And, you know, if cost isn't necessarily the concern and they just want something that's permanent and their own tissues, then it is a great option, especially if they have nice shaped breasts. They just want something a little sure. bit larger. And now, you know, I think, you know, if people are kind of guessing around, well, you guys didn't answer the question. What about saline or silicone? So I think the bottom line or the brass tacks for me is, you know, kind of easy but I think most plastic surgeons would come down to, you know, educating the patients around the safety of silicone. So that can kind of help you uh, with the decision. So maybe we can talk about breast implant illness when a patient asks you, hey, Dr. Plant, you know, I don't want implants because of breast implant illness or, hey, I have implants. And what about this breast implant illness? What do you say to them? Yeah. So, I mean, that's always 
a discussion, as is the saline versus silicone thing. And uh, for those who have been listening to uh, the previous episodes, you're probably well aware that I don't give straight and short answers to anything. <laughs> I know it's oh, good. That's why the podcast is good. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, all of these complex issues I have written blogs on uh, on my website, drmatthewplant.com, that I'll often like point people to when. I can't give them the full rundown on silicone breast implant illness. Um, If I have to bottom line the breast implant illness thing for patients, you know, try and get the point across in like two minutes or less. It's that we don't have any data that shows that there is something called breast implant illness. We've done a lot of study, like we meaning plastic surgeons, not like (laughs) me and Dr. Giancarlo personally. (laughs) In our lab, in our personal lab. He's more interested in ballistics and uh, (laughs) true. And you're more Um, interested in shark bites. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I would say at this point in time, breast implants, in particular, silicone breast implants are probably the most studied medical device on the planet because they've had so many questions that have needed to be answered. There was that whole period during the 90s where you couldn't even get silicone because they thought it was related to uh, autoimmune disease, which is, you know, what fits most closely with breast implant illness. But at the end of the day, we have not been able to find any link whatsoever between silicone breast implants and any autoimmune disease or any of the symptoms that people describe with breast implant illness. However, on the flip side of things, I don't think that it's reasonable for us as a profession to think that we have the only medical device on the planet that is 100% safe and is successful in 100% of cases. Um, There's no other medical device, even like valve implants and cardiac surgery, which are certainly a lot more important to keeping someone alive that they function, there isn't 100% success rate. There's a failure rate of those too. And there's people who will have allergy or reaction to those things. So for us to say that nobody is ever going to react to a breast implant, I think is a little bit um, narcissistic as a profession. So there probably is a small percentage of women that do have some sort of reaction to the silicone. Maybe it's like an allergic reaction. Uh, We don't know, but I think we're not going to find out until we've got, you know, 10 to 20 million women with breast implants that we can actually detect like such a small percentage of women and figure out like what is going on? Why does it cause this? And what are the symptoms so that we can actually make a diagnosis of breast implant illness? Right. And I I kind of use a similar kind of, um, two minute short answer with patients where I'm just like, listen, I'm, I don't think women who have these symptoms are lying or faking them. The symptoms are real. I, there's just no proof that the implant is causing it. Um, and there's evidence that some women improve when you remove the implants and some women don't. So when a woman comes to me and they think they have breast implant illness and they want their implants removed, I will say to them, no problem. I'll remove your implants. It's just, I don't want to overpromise and, and, and say this is going to cure your uh, other symptoms that are usually autoimmune in nature. Like, uh, please do not give up the search for other causes. Like when someone has these, uh, you know, constellation of symptoms called, you know, that they attribute to the breast implant, they should be seen by, you know, uh, medical doctors, internal medicine that are doing a full workup for all the kind of normal causes of, of these symptoms, which is usually an autoimmune disease, which are off, you know, before implants, these are very difficult to diagnose diseases anyway. You know, mm-hmm. those are the hardest in medical school because the symptoms are vague, nonspecific all over and can kind of arise out of nowhere. Um, so uh, I think uh, 
blaming the implant is an easy thing to do. And it kind of goes with, you know, being a surgeon where anything that happens to a patient afterwards is always the surgeon's fault, even if it has nothing to do with the surgeon. I, I remember recently I had a patient who had a mastopexy, it was a beautiful result. Everything was healed. And, you know, four months later, she sent me a photo that the, the breast was falling apart. And I was like, oh my God, what is happening? You know, and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, is it a wound healing? Is it nutrition? Is it, you know, are you smoking? I'm just going through a whole list of things. And she's like, well, actually I just recovered from COVID and I had a really bad COVID and, you know, COVID can cause uh, thrombosis. And um, definitely if you're causing, you know, microthrombi, which are, uh, you know, blood vessels clotting, that can impact wound healing. So, I mean, I didn't write this case report up, but I mean, that is like something that was completely beyond my control, which she attributed to the surgery, but it was really the COVID virus that was affecting her wound healing. So it's just kind of an example of where the surgeon takes the blame for everything afterwards. And the poor implant is taking the blame for every symptom that arises in the woman afterwards. Yeah, so true. But uh, yeah, I think your point about trying to figure out other potential causes is really important. Don't just assume it's the implants that are making you feel sick. Rule out everything else. Take out the implants. If you don't feel better, it wasn't the implants. Right. If you do, maybe it was. Maybe it was. We don't know how they do it. And so I think then the next thing with implants where, you know, I feel women uh, can get, uh, and men who are getting implants uh, or trans, uh, whoever uh, is interested in implants can get caught up on is profiles and sizes. So when a woman's asking you about profiles and sizes, how do you approach uh, that conversation? Yeah. So I um, have a very kind of specific way that we do implant sizing and that we talk about profiles when it comes to that. Generally at the first consult, I don't really talk about profile at all. I just try to get a sense of what the patient is looking for in terms of their final results. And then when I bring them in for a size and that's when we kind of dive deeper into it. And for me, the profile is almost the last thing that we factor in. Like when I choose an implant, there's sort of three things that I have to choose. There's the size of the implant and the profile of the implant and the filling of the implant. And you know, the size of the implant, we always determine partially based on like measurements of the chest, you know, base width is the most important, but there's other things there. And then I use volume sizers with patients, not the actual implants, but like these special inserts. Um, a lot of patients call them like chicken cutlets because they look like the things that were <laughs> on sale on as seen on TV, you know, maybe a decade ago to, to stuff your bra with. And, you know, once we have the dimensions of the chest, we have the volume that the patient's looking for then that kind of predetermines the profile of the implant we're right. going with. Right. And then I'll explain, you know, a bit of the difference, like, you know, right. a 12 width and you want 500 cc's, we're probably going to have to go with a high profile or an extra high profile right. to get that volume inside you. Right. And then they may back off from that number a little bit when they see how torpedo like the <laughs> ultra high profile ones look. So yeah, I, it's funny. I've had kind of an evolution and I think there's the way you size implants is as variable as there are, you know, surgeon approaches to anything. There's no right way. There's no wrong way. You just do the way that works the best for you and your patients. Cause I remember being a medical student and being amazed at one surgeon who I'm sure you'll know, you know, doing the consultation with the breast implants where he would go into a drawer and just start throwing implants at the patient and saying, just take, you know, take one that you, that you like. And that worked for him. You know, he's a very successful breast surgeon. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I did the cutlets, I did the sizers 
And I actually found that it wasn't helpful uh, for, for just for me. I found like there was a lot of time involved and you'd end up with a patient who was just as confused at the end as they were at the beginning. So I tried the old uh, rice bag uh, method. And so that's for people who don't know that method, it's you tell the patient, okay, if you're interested in a 300 or a 350 and you can't decide between them, go home and use your kind of measuring scale with a, you know, a bag and put rice in. So it's equal to 300 grams, put that in your breast and then put 350 grams of rice and you can kind of try your outfits. And I felt that was also sort of helpful but I don't do either of those anymore. Now what I do is I just measure the patient's chest and I give them a very simple question. I'm like, do you want to be natural? And that's going to be on the smaller end of the, you know, that's going to fit on your chest or do you want like really cleavage, really out there, va va voom. And it's funny, the patients that want the va voom, they, they say va voom and then I just give them the biggest implant that's going to fit that base width. And that means I'm just, I don't even bring in profile. I will worry about that to fit that size that they want. And it's actually funny, you know, I kind of can know the, by their personality, but what they've told me, what answer they're going to give already to that question. And then, you know, they can also say, well, I don't want Vavum and I don't want, you know, to be too natural. I want right in the middle. And then I just take, you know, that base width and instead of going to max size, the mid size, I just go in the middle. And I feel like, uh, it, it really kind of, alleviates patient anxiety because they're not getting very complicated. They're kind of just trusting the surgeon, which I feel like they're doing anyway with all of their surgery. So, you know, you just kind of give me an idea of what you want. Um, and I've really never had a patient. Well, that's, that's not true. It's rare to have a patient complain that I've gone uh, too small. That never happens. It, there's a couple of patients that wish they had gone bigger. Um, but that's also kind of alleviated um, by by not giving them too much choice. Cause I feel like when they have too much choice, then they have decision regret. But when you take the decision, when you make the decisions very clear, you don't give them too much. I find they just, they don't have as much regret cause they didn't make the decision. They're just happy with their new breast. <laughs> I like the sound of that approach. And, um, it sounds much more efficient than what I do. And no, but I mean, you gotta do what works for you. Yeah. Uh, in terms of that size regret, we do now factor that in. I didn't, initially like we used to just size them up to what they liked but now i'll actually size them past what they like so if you liked 500 then let's try 550 or 600 so that you can see now while you're you know two and a half weeks before your surgery you're totally clear-headed and making informed decisions that you did not like that bigger size of implants so that you know once the drop and fluff happens and you've gotten used to having these like massive implants sitting at your collarbones and then they settle into what you actually wanted you know i think that's when women kind of come back and they're like man i really liked having those giant breasts like i wish i went larger <laughs> but then we can sort of say like you know when you were sizing things you saw larger on yourself and when you, you were totally clear headed, not recovering from surgery or anything like that, you didn't like it that big. So, you know, just remember, like you didn't like that. You would not be happy if we went bigger. So although it does seem like, you know, you kind of wish you went bigger, you tried it, you didn't like it. So sleep and, well. And I think there's also an important thing that I try to educate my patients that bigger is not always better. Uh, and I don't know where it comes because in other areas of life, you know, when you go to your restaurant, it's like you want a bigger portion, you know, when you, you always want more for your money. And I think in plastic surgery, that, that kind of attitude can come in where I want more, I want more lipo. I want, you want to cut more skin. I want, you know, bigger breasts. And I always say, listen, big, 
press, big problems. Uh, you know, your gravity is going to work much more aggressively on a larger implant. The skin is going to be stretched and, 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 and there's probably bigger implants, uh, can, it can have a longer recovery time because you've got more stretching and more dissection, um, to get that big implant in there. Um, there's more trauma. And I think one really, really important thing, which I've, I've, try to educate patients on is when I'm doing a breast lift with an augmentation, I really like to tell them, listen, these are two opposite operations. The breast lift is making your breast smaller and tighter. And the implant is making your breast bigger and stretching it. They are enemies. So we must, you know, be mindful with the implant selection that we're actually going to go a little bit smaller than maybe you want or that you're expecting because it's fighting the lift and the lift takes priority because you need to heal. Uh, and I feel like when I put it in those terms of them going against each other, that the patients kind of understand. And I have actually a couple of patients that, you know, had really, really small breasts that needed a lift, you know, the kind of like, um, the breasts I'm talking about where there's not enough skin even to, to get a good size implant in, and they're going to do an upsize as a second stage. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, staging it is important in some of those patients and explaining why is key. Because if you're coming in with an ACAP, we cannot put an 800 cc implant into you no. on your first surgery. There's no, there's no way it's going to no. happen without it's not gonna happen. serious complications. Very, very serious. Okay, so the next thing about implants we've talked about, uh, which we haven't touched on, is the textured implants and the whole... Um, uh, cancer causing implants. Do you get patients that ask you about that or, um, uh, kind of refer to ALCL, uh, in your consults all the time? I do a lot of explants. So, you know, I think by nature, my practice draws more of the people that have those concerns. Um, but a lot of women who have textured implants are very worried that they're going to develop ALCL, which is this rare cancer that, uh, for those of you who don't know, is associated with texturization in breast implants, much more with aggressively textured ones, specifically the Allergan BioCell ones, which have been basically recalled from everywhere in the world, um, recalled from shelves, not recalled from patients. There's no recommendation to go and take them out prophylactically, so right don't now. run and get unnecessary surgery. Right. Um, and, yes. and there's also micro-textured ones like Mentor and Sientra that do have a, a loose association, but not nearly as much. And I actually have a lot of women coming in and asking, you know, what's my risk of ALCL? Um, and I kind of will explain to them with smooth implants, which is all I'm willing to offer you at this point in time. It's basically zero unless you've had textured ones in there. And, you know, for the ones that come in with textured implants and are worried that they have it and they don't know, or they're going to get it, I always make sure to tell them like, it's not subtle. When you get ALCL, the sign is a sudden massive swelling of one of your breasts. This isn't something that you can miss. The breast will like double in size. And I think for any reasonable person, whether they know about ALCL or not, that's going to prompt them to contact their surgeon and then leave it to us to sort of figure out what's going on and make that diagnosis. Yeah. The history of the ALCL for people who don't know is, is, is a bit of a, topsy-turvy story because, you know, a lot of surgeons, you know, when we were training, we're still advocating for, you know, there was a big argument to say texturization has these benefits and smooth uh, have these disadvantages. So that's why 
you know, surgeon X uses texturized implants. I remember going to those lectures and hearing those people speak. And I think we, our generation, like Dr. Plant, we're so lucky because I never used textured implants in my practice. By the time I was a baby plastic surgeon, they'd already fallen out of favor because of this rare cancer risk. And I can't stress enough. It is extremely rare just because you have a textured implant or, you know, you, 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 currently have a textured implant doesn't mean you're going to get this cancer. It's a very rare, low risk phenomenon, but it's something that smooth implants have zero risk of. So I feel that we were lucky. We dodged a bullet because a lot of very good plastic surgeons, very caring plastic surgeons, you know, unwittingly put in these texturized implants, which they thought were safe devices, which proved to have this super, super rare uh, cancer associated with them. So like Dr. Plant uh, said, it's, it's not a reason to panic. If you have a textured implant, it's just something to stay in touch with your surgeon and to monitor uh, and to just be aware of. And if the recommendations change, of course, uh, as we uh, find out more information and they'll change. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just, you know, to fill in the blanks there for people who aren't, you know, plastic surgeons or residents, the supposed advantages of having those textured implants were a decreased rate of capsular contracture. And they're supposed to kind of stick to the tissues like Velcro and stay where you put them. So malpositions were also supposed to be less. And this was great, especially in reconstruction. But if it gives you another cancer, then whatever those benefits are, definitely not worth it. No. And so what about, uh, you mentioned capsular contracture. So maybe it's a good time to say, what are the kind of downsized implants? We all know the upsides, like, you know, you get larger breasts, you get more volume, you get a better shape, you know, you get more self-confidence, you look better in your clothing. Everyone knows the advantages there. That's obvious. The advantages of breast implants, but what about the disadvantages when, when patients ask you? Yeah. I mean, I feel like going into potential complications, including like capsular contracture and stuff is an episode on its own, you know, stuff that I'll tell patients about, you know, that are, they're not common, but the more common complications with breast implants are malpositions, which is where the implant is moved in a direction that you don't want. It can be up, down and either side, uh, or capsular contracture, which we don't really have a good handle on what causes it, but basically the natural scar tissue that forms around the breast that we want to form around the breast implant, uh, for some reason starts squeezing that breast implant. It becomes hard. It changes the shape. It becomes more round and it becomes painful. And I always tell patients that across the board, there's like a four to 10% risk of getting a capsular contracture yeah. with a primary augmentation even. Yeah. So I think, yeah, the big, the, the big downside, I agree is capsular contracture. And even though it's a low percentage when it does happen, it's so annoying for the patient and, and for your, surgeon because you you know you have a great result on one side and the other side is getting tight and hard uh so uh i think that's what i talk about with patients when a patient comes to me with a previous capsule contracture then i always talk about hey i can do so-and-so maneuvers i have some tricks up my sleeve to try and get rid of this capsule contracture but there's always a risk it's going to come back and since you've had it once the risk is higher than in someone who's never had it. Um, and that's someone who sometimes, I, again, I talk about fat grafting or augmenting the breast, especially if they've had capsular contracture after a second surgery, trying to get rid of it. That's someone I talk about uh, fat grafting with to like say, hey, you've tried implants, your body doesn't like them. We tried a second solution, your body still doesn't like them. So maybe let's talk about fat grafting at this point. Yeah, that's definitely, you know, a good place to go with those patients. Cause after a second capsule contracture, I would say their chance of getting a third is like 50, 50 at yes. 
yeah. probably more than 50% chance that yeah. they're going to get another capsule contracture. So I'll always talk to them about Aliderm at that point if they want oh, to. Oh, nice. Them. Yeah. It's a good option. Expensive or, option. Uh, it is not cheap. Um, the way I'm doing it now, it's not as expensive as it was three years ago. Um, but studies are still being done uh, with me and some other people on how successful it is. Anecdotally, it's been pretty good and it only adds about $2,000 per case. But when you oh, refer yeah. to the expensive, um, you know, back in the day when I did it the way they taught us in residency, where you cover the entire bottom of it with like a big contour sheet. I've had patients spend up to $17,000 on wow. just the alloderm for their case. Forget. And so, any and so for people who don't know what alloderm is, it's, it's actually donor or cadaver from a, a deceased person's skin that's been donated to create um, a surgical product to help um, uh, prevent capsular contracture. It's used in many areas, but imagine that. That's why it's so expensive because you have to get a deceased donor, you have to purify it, you have to remove the antigens from the skin, uh, and that's how you get alloderm. So yeah. That's why it's so expensive. It's a good option, but definitely not cheap. Um, but if someone's going to salvage their implants, that's what I offer them. And we seem to be taking the risk of a recurrent capsular contracture down from like 50% to two to 3%, which wow. is lower Crazy. than, you know, a primary breast augmentation risk. Right. So we'll see in a couple of years as we get more case numbers and have long-term data, whether this kind of affordable way of doing alloderm uh, is working, but it seems to be. So now that we filled the listeners heads with more than they've ever wanted to know about implants, and we still have only scratched mm -hmm. the surface, literally, <laughs> what would you, what would be your closing kind of top, I don't know, top two things to tell a patient that is of most importance when they're, you know, kind of selecting their just breast implants or coming to you for a consultation. I couldn't narrow it down to two things, to be honest. Like I would say, we, <laughs> let's break. This is part one and we'll back and everything you need to know about breast implants. Part two, where we would talk about incisions, whether to go above the muscle, below the muscle. Oh yes. We didn't even uh, get into incisions. When do you have to replace things? So yeah, no, it can be inc incredibly uh, complicated decision. And I just like to bring it back. If I had to summarize two things for patients, I like to keep things super simple. It, it's less stressful for me. It's less stressful for the patient. It's just think about your size. Cause I think that's the most important factor over everything else. You know, you can go down to many, many variables with the implants, but it all comes down for me to size. And the best way to judge size is look at photos of your friends, other plastic surgeons results, you know, maybe models, other wish picks, these kind of things. And that gives me a really good idea of where you're at with your size. And then the second thing is, do you really want breast implants? Because sometimes uh, patients think they want implants when a lift would be uh, more more appropriate and give them whatever they want, or sometimes even a reduction <laughs> they're talking about implants. So I think those are the two major things is, do you really need implants? Is it something you want? Cause implants are to increase breast size or, or improve shape. Uh, and what size do you want? And everything else leave the details to me. And I feel like that really, um, is it, is a way to go in my practice. Yeah. That sounds like a nice way to kind of sum things up. Um, I wish I could do simple, but it just seems <laughs> completely incapable of uh, maybe genetically. I don't know. Oh, it makes for a good podcast. It's yeah. beyond the knife, 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 knife. So should we uh, stop here with part one yes. and then circle back in, well, a couple minutes for us, but maybe a week for listeners. Yes. I think, Steve, 
everything you need to know with breast implants. Yeah, stay tuned for that because I think you know we're going to hit on incisions. We're going to hit on. Um, we just scratched the surface with really the complexity, so we'll get more information on episode two of everything about breast implants.